Hello, friends, and welcome to the Dimension of Our Midnight Cake, a weekly transmission from the Nexus of Realities. I'm Soltis, and joining me are my friends and fellow transdimensional beings, Beaches. Oh, I wish we were talking about Hellraiser. <laughs> <laughs> Lumberdor. All right, I'm ready for the Don Knotts conversation. <laughs> <laughs> That's about right. <laughs> Doug. If you give an occultist a camera, this is what you get. <laughs> and back by popular demand, my dad, Paka. Mostly, mostly by my demand. <laughs> hey, all demand. Listen it's to your popular. Father. Your demand is so the people that made this movie were occultists. That's why I said that. I, I'd know. like to point out that it was technically my demand. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm here just for the cake, and the way we're going, it's going to be midnight. The fourth suggestion for our series of Halloween movies comes from Lumberdor, Nosferatu. A Symphony of Horror is a 1922 silent German expressionist horror film directed by F.W. Murnau and starring Max Schrenk as Count Orlock, a vampire who preys on the wife of his estate agent and brings the plague to their town. Nosferatu was produced by Prana Film and is an unauthorized and unofficial adaptation of Bram Stoker's 1897 novel Dracula. Even with several details altered, Stoker's heirs sued over the adaptation and a court ruling ordered all copies of the film to be destroyed. However, several prints of Nosferatu survived, and the film came to be regarded as an influential masterpiece of cinema. There are several interesting aspects to the making of this film and how it came to be, one of which is the studio behind Nosferatu, Prana Film, was a short-lived silent-era German film studio founded in 1921 by Enrico Deichmann, and occultist artist Albin Grau, named for the Hindu concept of prana. Although the studio's intent was to produce occult and supernatural-themed films, Nosferatu was its only production, as it declared bankruptcy shortly after the film's release. Grau claimed he was inspired to shoot a vampire film by a war experience. In Grau's apocryphal tale, during the winter of 1916, a Serbian farmer told him that his father was a vampire and one of the undead. Deichmann and Grau gave Heinrich Eilin, a disciple of Hans Heinz Ewers, a task to write a screenplay inspired by the Dracula novel, although Prana Film had not obtained the film rights. Galin was an experienced specialist in dark romanticism. He had already worked on The Student of Prague and a screenplay for The Golem, How He Came Into the World. Galin set the story in the fictional North German harbor town of Weisberg. He changed the characters' names and added the idea of the vampire bringing the plague to Weisberg via rats on the ship and left out the Van Helsing vampire hunter character. Eileen's expressionist style screenplay was poetically rhythmic without being so dismembered as other books influenced by literary expressionism, such as those by Karl Meyer. For cost reasons, cameraman Fritz Arno Wagner only had one camera available and therefore there was only one original negative. The director followed Galeen's screenplay carefully, following handwritten instructions on camera positioning, lighting, and related matters. Nevertheless, Murnau completely rewrote 12 pages of the script as Galeen's text was missing from the director's working script. This concerned the last scene of the film, in which Ellen sacrifices herself and the vampire dies in the first rays of the sun. Murnau prepared carefully. There were sketches that were to correspond exactly to each film scene, and he used a metronome to control the pace of the acting. The original score was composed by Hans Erdmann, 
and performed by an orchestra at the film's Berlin premiere. However, most of the score has been lost, and what remains is only a partial adapted suite. Thus, throughout the history of Nosferatu screenings, many composers and musicians have written or improvised their own soundtrack to accompany the film. For example, James Bernard, composer of the soundtrack of many Hammer horror films in the late 1950s and 1960s, wrote a score for a reissue. Bernard's score was released in 1997 by Silva Screen Records. A version of Erdmann's original score, reconstructed by musicologist and composer Gillian Anderson and James Kessler, was released in 1995 by BMG Classics, with several missing sequences composed anew, in an attempt to match Erdmann's style. Over the years, the film has received overwhelmingly positive reviews. In 1997, critic Roger Ebert added Nosferatu to his list of the great movies, writing, quote, Here is the story of Dracula before it was buried alive in cliches, jokes, TV skits, cartoons, and more than 30 other films. The film is in awe of its material. It seems to really believe in vampires. Is Murnau's Nosferatu scary in the modern sense? Not for me. I admire it more for its artistry and ideas, its atmosphere and images, than for its ability to manipulate my emotions like a skillful modern horror film. It knows none of the latter tricks of the trade, like sudden threats that pop out from the side of the screen, but Nosferatu remains effective. It doesn't scare us, but it haunts us." Unquote. Nosferatu is anywhere from 63 to 94 minutes long, depending on the version and transfer speed. Be sure to join us next week for our fourth installment, where we will be discussing Hellraiser, the 2022 American supernatural horror film directed by David Bruckner. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to contribute or get in contact with us, consider visiting our website at ourmidnightcake.com, liking, subscribing, and sharing the transmission with your friends. Yeah, yeah, it's the 100 year anniversary of this movie. And it's just. It's and a, Doug had the benefit of watching this with. With, with Joe Bob Riggs' commentary there you on go. it. Yes, yeah, so that's why I have notes. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's like it was premiered at like Zoological Garden in Berlin, this meeting of artists and intellectuals. And like the score was played live by a symphony, which is to me sounds pretty amazing. You know, it's classy when they have a symphony. It, yeah. You know, you got a symphony. I mean, it was sort of like a horror movie. It was also kind of regarded as an art house movie. Well, but, it was called uh, what, German German Expressionism at the time, I think. Yeah, some people this, call this it Expressionist, this, yeah. This, the, the, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. I was going to say Caligari is the other big yeah, one in the Golem. Yeah. The Golem's another yeah, one. Yeah, the Golem, that's a great one. Mm -hmm. The Max Reinhardt Theater School started making horror films. And so the founder of that studio was Alvin Grau who is actually an occultist. Occultist made this movie. They promoted it as the first occultist film. And, and the director, F.W. Murnau, was involved with the occult as well. Like, you know, there's that moment where Nock gets the letter and there's occultist symbols like all over this letter. Yeah. It's like, well, that's not suspicious at all. Right. <laughs> they were wanting to sneak the stuff in. And the other thing that happened with this is Florence Stoker was still alive when this came out. And she was uh, furious and sued them and took them to court. Basically, she was mad that they were making money off of, you know, thing that her husband created even though i feel like this movie actually differs from the source material a decent amount but she basically could have all copies of this like turned over and destroyed and so it became this bootleg movie like there are all these illegal prints in other countries where they couldn't enforce the copyright laws that were enforced in uh germany and it became kind of like the first cult film like what we would call like a cult film because people were sharing these little snippets of clips and things. I know the version I watched and 
probably what you guys watched. It was restored from archivists pulling bits and pieces together to keep it alive, despite uh, I was going Stoker's to best ask, intentions. Which version did you watch? This was uh, the version that was on Shutter, so it was like restored with the original score and putting together the the highest quality they could of all the clips and stuff. But it, even then, it, it kind of like you guys talked about. Like, there's moments where it kind of goes sepia, and there's moments where it goes kind of blue, and there's. It's kind of the background is like Florence Stoker tried to destroy it. Fans kept it alive and a bunch of occultists made it. <laughs> so that's something that I can appreciate. This I, is what you there's get. Something to be said for that. And there's even something like Max Shrek, who's Orlock. He's only in the movie for like nine minutes, but like he did all of his own makeup. That was kind of like in the theater. He always would play the old disfigured guys and like do his own prosthetics and stuff. You know, most silent films were filmed on sets and Renal hated that. He wanted everything to be on location that shot of them going down the river but they hiked for seven hours with film equipment to get the shot of people going down a river they found a castle in serbia to actually film at a castle it's just like just crazy stuff like that because the guy was just kind of nuts that was one of the things i noticed as i was watching it was how much was on location which is mm-hmm. rare at the time yeah. um and how how amazing the b footage was totally Totally. There's a lot of cutting between shots. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's all this cutting between shots to put it together that was not common at the time. The camera is a character in this movie. Or like in other silent films at the time, it was like filming plays practically. Yeah. It was really kind of revolutionary. Yeah. To take an entire novel and film it in in such a detailed way, it's a long movie. That fascinates me too, because the the novel And the novel's boring. The novel's very boring. I don't know if you've read it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) But it's, I mean, but it's very- It helps with the uh, Edward Gore It's very stuffy. You know, it's just very (laughs) stuffy and long-winded in places. And they really had to condense this thing down. I'm I'm totally with you on that one. He's having to invent the visual language of a horror film, basically. Or even just of cinema, somewhat, you know? Yeah. And and that's what makes it interesting to me. But I don't know. I mean, we did another silent film that was certainly pretty different a while back. I was wondering what you guys thought of this versus that. Very different styles. <laughs> Very this this different. film was almost annoyingly loud, not silent. <laughs> <laughs> right. What is it? Is it Buster Keaton? Is that the is it Buster Keaton the one that did all the like the house falling and yep. Yes. Yep. It yeah, really, yeah, yeah. to me, is similar to that style because there was just so much. It's very physical. Put, in, put into each. I mean, you know, not comedy, obviously, but there was so much put into each shot. It was so thought out, stage wise and reaction wise, and lighting and everything. Even with the lighting, this thing's you know hundred years old, and some of the the lighting is better than stuff right. today where they have all this technology but they still can't properly film things so that it appears in the, the dark screen. without you still can't having see a glow on everyone's spamming faces. hbo on twitter like we can't see what's happening in game of thrones we can't see <laughs> it's too dark we wish season eight had been like that <laughs> <laughs> we didn't want to see that come on the other thing about the film that really stands out especially for the time is the composition of the shots because like like you were saying the other things were like filming a play yeah Mm -hmm. you just have this space and action comes in and out of it but with this the composition the well thought out composition of of each shot is it's like moving paintings yeah you know yeah like when the play comes and, and you have that procession down the street and then the guy's like marking the crosses on the door 
Oh, that's yeah. like, that's some creepy and effective kind of stuff. And it doesn't even need title cards. You know, Murnau hated title cards too. He, he released a film that had no title cards. I can't remember what it was called. My favorite shot is, you know, I think a lot of people think of like the shots with a shadow. But my favorite yeah. one is at the end when he's feeding on her. And it's like a oh, completely yeah. like pitch that. black room and all you can see is head and his eyes. Oh my gosh. That's a nightmare fuel. Even the visual camera tricks he did with making him disappear and um, stuff oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you get oh, a lot of like called. really it's... early like practice, practical seminar effect. Well, it's it, it's a dissolve. Yeah, it's a yeah. dissolve. There you go. Mm-hmm. Laps, laps dissolve. And then you have a little puff afterwards coming up from the crowd. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what I love about old films like this? And, you know, I mean, this oh, is an man. old film is it's like the difference between really high, I don't know what you call it, high definition soundtracks and vinyl. There's a sound on Mm. vinyl that is characteristic that I love. I'd I'd rather listen to records than CDs or, you know, over iTunes or that kind of stuff, because there's just, there's something about the sound, the, the occasional little pop and crack and really makes the music good for me. And with a film like this, visually that's what you get you have it's the for me it's the love of the imperfections it's the imperfections that make it feel more real to me yeah you've got all of the the scratches and the little pock marks on it and the stilted movement sometimes you know because they were hand cranking these things mm-hmm. and um, just all of that that goes into it i think that that really solidifies it to me as one of the great classic films certainly one of the greatest classic horror films it's definitely an art form right think about that someone hand cranking a camera yeah it has like that i mean they're still figuring out like what speed to film at you know (laughs) like the things we take (laughs) for granted it's like how fast do i crank how many frames (laughs) per second (laughs) yeah how many frames per second am i supposed to hit you notice how orlock speeds up as he's loading the coffins on the wagon uh-huh. Yes. And, and putting the wood up there and all that kind of stuff. It's that's zoom, 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 zoom back and forth. At first I was thinking, oh wow, who you know, who screwed this up? But I I, I think it was on purpose. I think it purposely Yeah, it was intentional. It was showing his yeah. uh his vampire superpowers or whatever it referred yeah. to them as. Yeah, the depending on what version like the version I'm watching, they had cr- corrected any FPS issues and that that part was still sped up. So I think that was yeah. uh, an intentional one. Yeah, yeah. And then you have those weird stop motion moments on the boat with the lid, the lid comes oh, yes. up and covers them or things like that. <laughs> chaka, that chaka, I feel chaka, like chaka. that if there was anything that was unnecessary, it was that one little stop motion thing. It felt like, like he could have uh, just lifted up the, the thing. I want to say on Monty Python's <laughs> Flying Circus, they would do that occasionally. They'd have a purposely abrupt like stop motion sequence. Yeah. Like that. yeah. yeah. It's just what it made me think of. I would love to see the mechanism that they created to lift him straight up out of the casket. Oh, I know. Whatever I he was laying shot. on and however they rebalanced it, whatever, where he just comes up. I, I would love to see how they how they did that because it had to be something, you know, mechanical that they had to create in order to lift him straight up like that. Yeah. I assume the camera guy, they just strapped to him to a rake and the camera guy just stepped on it. I mean, that's that to me is the most logical. <laughs> You get that flattening of the nose on the lips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here's a question for you guys: Have any of you seen uh, Shadow of the Vampire? Yes, super cool yes. movie. Is that a great? New- I don't that was think I have. 2000. So that's that's Willem Dafoe. Yeah, and and John Malkovich, and it's about the making of this film. Yeah, Will- Willem Dafoe plays 
Max Schrank. Everybody plays the person who played the character. And it's the making of the film. And, and none of it's true to life. It's all fantasy. Yeah. The premise is that they actually found a vampire. <laughs> they found a real vampire to play it. And they don't realize it. But, but yeah, he's a real vampire. And that's all going on behind the scenes. It's a Gosh, great movie. I forgot about that movie. That movie's cool, actually. Yeah, it got two Academy uh, uh, nominations. One was for Willem Dafoe as Best Supporting Actor. Oh, he's and so one good. Was, one was for makeup for mm. the Nosferatu character. He looks uh, incredible or, in it. Yeah, but uh, the, the Grinch that stole Christmas got the, the best makeup award that year. F and Ron Howard, gosh, <laughs> in collusion with Carrie John again. Knotts. <laughs> Jim Carrey. Called again. Uh, Shadow of what? I can't Shadow of the Vampire. Shadow of the Vampire. Okay. It's Let's it's watch. not on any of the streaming services right now. Okay, and so then I guess Malkovich is like for now in that case he's the director. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's really and good. Really that one's good worth a watch. As, as for now, yeah. I'd forgotten about That's it. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll check that out. Renal's a strange one. That's not his real last name. He had this falling out with his family. He was like openly homosexual, which was very taboo at that time, and had like this big falling out with his family. And he got in the film, served in World War One in the trenches, became ill, and then he flew planes, really low flying planes in like World War One. And he crashed yeah. like I think it was like seven times. <laughs> but he survived every oh. single time. <laughs> and he wound up in the embassy, like managing propaganda and eventually wound up helping to make some films. And that's like what got him into film. He's, but he's kind of this like elusive, weird, stoic Prussian kind of character. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Malkovich does Quite a great a character. characterization of him, you know, in Shadow of the Vampire. You really believe that it is this obsessed guy having to make this movie and not letting anything get in his way, including a vampire. You look at those locations, it feels like that. Lugging that equipment around castles in Serbia or wherever the heck they were. I forgot where they were, but and just that alone, that must have been revolutionary at the time. Yeah, or like or like the shot of the ship coming in without anyone steering it and all that stuff. Like that's awesome. The weight of all that equipment too and having to do it either on your back or as much as you could on, on wagons or, you know, I mean, the dedication that you had to have in order to even pull a movie like that off, not to mention, I mean, backers and things that that film had to have cost a fortune to make. And then uh, Marvel's just like green screens, lol. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Who was it? I bet that, their equipment weighs more, though. Not even acting. That's, that's not real filmmaking. Uh, you oh, know, with just about everybody things. who has had to do that. Uh, Sir, Sir Ian McKellen had a had a breakdown on the set of The Lord of the Rings when he was is all surrounded by green screen stuff. Christian Bale, most recently with the Thor: Love and Thunder movie, said that he absolutely hated it; that it was terrible and boring and not acting at all. Didn't show. Didn't show in the movie at all. No, no, he he put everything he had into that role he was, I was trying to take a shot at love and thunder but you know <laughs> christian bale was the best part of that movie probably well, he's, would, he's one of the great he's one of the great actors today he's awesome oh, yeah, you know, he is. As, as far as somebody who really is serious about his craft and knows it and and is actually has 
developed ability for acting. Christian Bale is one of the, one of the greats, which yeah, I suppose is why he's, he's so difficult on set. <laughs> yeah. I say, by all accounts, a terrible person in real and life. And if you get in my way, I will cuss <laughs> you out and maybe punch you in the face. <laughs> Something that kept going through my mind while watching Nosferatu was, I wonder how much it would cost for me to make this movie today. Huh. And, or, or or how or how easy would it be for me to make this movie today? Something that you know we we've, we've talked about as being revolutionary at the time. Wonder with the progression of technology and you know to to make a silent movie like that, how difficult that would be. Well, there's a modern version of it from Werner Herzog. Yeah, the yeah, one yeah. with with Klaus Kinski as the Nosferatu. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh huh. In like the seventies, they use certain time. Yeah, seventy nine, seventy nine. Okay, so modern asterisk, modern asterisk. <laughs> they use title cards to announce, you know, things going on, and they they use the iris effect. I think what bothers me about it is that it's in color. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't do it in color. It's got to be black and white. I love the design of the creature, though. He, I just think he still looks freaky as heck. Those hands. Well, He's got uh, like an excellent profile, man. and then his hands are so long and pointy. It's everything that slightly sticks out sticks out like ten times more than it should. That's <laughs> those strange proportions. Uh, it's, 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 it's almost alien. He still wears a hat nicely, though. I got to give him that. It's a heck of a <laughs> turban. <laughs> I should get a turban like that. <laughs> no one notices that if you've got a nice hat. I think visually that's what makes the character work so well is that you you have him out of proportion. That causes that weirdness. He's next to generally well-proportioned people of the time, and yet he's this tall, really deathly thin. He looks so slender, like all in black, yeah, with the tails yeah. and everything. Yeah, and then you've got the proportions on his face, the nose, the eyes, the, the ears, the, the bald head. Thinking when he leaves... Harker's room when Mina is is shouting out to Harker to wake up, yeah. and she's back in Bremen or wherever she is. He looks kind of he's he's kind of got a rat like kind of look. I thought yeah. like all the rats oh, yeah. he has with Very him, rat like. Mm-hmm. Well, and you you look at how they kind of mirror him and Mina. She's tall and angular and has a long face and the big eyes that with the black circles around them and her whole thing is just as as freaky as he is you know every time she looks at the camera and she it, it she almost reminds me of, of eyes Carol, wide Carol Burnett, you know oh, as, that's, uh, that scene when she's like on Nora the balcony Desmond. yeah she's like on the balcony in her nightgown like having her breakdown or whatever like yeah, yeah her eyes are just like yeah the guy with the drum the town crier with the drum when he reads the proclamation that no one can take their sick people to uh, to the hospitals because of the plague. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's in two parts. As as you're reading it, you've got this whole proclamation, da da da, and it gets down to the end, and it says that that no one is to take the sick or the ill or the afflicted, whatever it is, to, and then there's nothing after that, <laughs> and you have to wait for the next title card to come up to read where they can't go, and it takes so long for that next <laughs> drama. <laughs> And a half. The suspense, and I I read this thing, you know, and then I'm like, come on, you're let's go. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I had to stop and notice myself doing this 
with this title thing. But I was I was like sitting here going, you know. Uh, Beaches, you mentioned that you had a magic trick to deal with that. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. What's your magic trick? What was the magic? Oh, I just paid attention to anything else. Um. <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, that spot on the wall is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Which... Uh... You're explains, reading explains my input. <laughs> you're reading the uh, reading the IMDb trivia on Hellraiser, the new Hellraiser. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for joining us in the dimension of our midnight cape. We hope you'll visit us again. From myself, Lumberdor, Beaches, and Doug. Thank you. And good night. Yeah, I don't know that I would appreciate it as much if I hadn't had like the commentary and like my little bits of research backing it up. I was just, I've been interested in this movie for a while. It's like been on my list. Um, I see how it can maybe be a tough watch too. I think that's something similar with novels that are annotated, mm. where where you, you have, have that extra insight, yeah, mm-hmm, into into what's going on and what was taking place at the time, what the world was like when the book was written, those kinds of things. That all all plays into how they achieved the final product. Yeah, and or or even like yeah. you know I've seen Metropolis which I don't know if you, that's an awesome movie if you haven't oh, seen yeah. it. And then, and then we did like our Charlie Chaplin thing. I almost feel like you almost, if you've seen a few silent movies, you kind of know how to handle it maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Staring at the spot on the wall. Me, just, I always you know, watch it twice because I fall asleep at least once. So that's my method. <laughs> that's good. I wish I, I was think, joking. <laughs> I, I think there's an, a, a really important point that you bring up though. The more you research something, the more you end up appreciating it. Mm-hmm. It's like that. There's there's an old story of of a guy that's given a book and you know throws it on a shelf and never reads it until he uh, one day just happens to meet the author, runs into the author, and they start talking, and he realizes that's who this guy is, and he gets to know the guy, and then he remembers, oh wait a minute, I I think I've got that book on my shelf from you know years ago, and he goes back, pulls it out, and then suddenly the book is important to him. And I think that's the case so often for so many things until we gain an appreciation. Well, for instance, everything you were telling us about the director, Murnau, yeah, suddenly he becomes a real person mm-hmm. who has a history, who did things. Like you see his perspective on it. Well, and you even begin to feel what he went through to get to the point of being the person who made this movie. There's a, uh, a reality to him. He becomes a, a living, breathing soul. That then makes watching the film that he made much more interesting, at least to me, because then I have some sort of connection. Yeah. 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 There's there's connections. a a good word. That's even like with Chaplin, like we had done some research on that and we were finding, you know, this is like one of the last silent films. It was almost kind of becoming countercultural for him to have made that film as a silent film. And I don't know, there's just something about knowing that, like going into it that made it a little more, I don't know, gave it some punch or something, I guess. (laughs) like I felt it more, you know, like he's making deliberate artistic choices by going this route instead of with technology, just making movies because of damn gambling debts and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what he did on those other movies, you know?
It's a, <laughs> a Marx Brothers way. So that's right. That's right. I had to join a club so I could hit gotta, you over the head. Got to pay off Chico's debts. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they had that line that when when they started filming, the uh, actors came out of their cages and the crew had to go into theirs. 